The last book Theodore Seuss Geisel wrote before his death in 1991 was, Oh, the places you'll go. It's a classic that receives renewed interest every year around graduation season as graduates commence a new beginning. The star of the book is you, a nameless little boy about to make his way out into the world. Let me read just a bit of Dr. Seuss for us this morning. Out there things can happen, and frequently they do, to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along, you'll start happening too. You'll be on your way up, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. Except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on, you'll be left in a lurch. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked, some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you can sprain both your elbow and chin, do you dare to stay out, do you dare to go in? How much can you lose, how much can you win? But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though your enemies prowl. On and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. I think a significant reason why this particular book has resonated with so many people through the years is at its very heart. It communicates, as all, most all the writings of Dr. Seuss do, that you matter. The belief that each one has value, that each one has significance, that each one has worth. If only we will recognize it and live our lives in light of this truth. He speaks to the belief that you have a unique contribution to make to this world. But the journey will not always be easy. We continue with our teaching on the book of Acts, a book about the story of the birth of the early church whose very vocation is to go and to bear witness to Jesus. Last week found us in chapter 12. We see that the church is now fully engaged in its mission. It's proclaiming its message to outsiders. Initially, it appeared that everything was going really great for the early Christians as they prayed, as they moved out much was going well, and then we come to chapter 6 and the stoning of Stephen, the disciple Stephen, by a mob. We are reminded that prayer isn't magic and that just because we pray doesn't mean that all will go the way that you hoped or that God will protect Christians always from painful experiences. Yet we keep going and persist in prayer and we learn to let go of control a bit and we begin to learn to trust. Which brings us now to chapters 13 and 14. Chapters 13 and 14 comprise what is commonly known as Paul's first missionary journey. The beginning of today's reading will be the very beginning of chapter 13. We're gonna read just three verses together and then we're gonna jump way ahead to almost the very ending of Paul's first missionary journey. And and kind of immerse ourselves in one story in that missionary journey. People of God sent out into the world with purpose. Bang-ups and hang-ups will happen to you. 
When they do, what will be your response? Let's turn our attention now to God's word. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Jumping now to chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city. He brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even when these words, they had scarcely been spoken, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. After that, they proclaimed the good news to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, then to Iconium and Antioch. There, they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after that, they appointed elders for them in each church. With prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. I'm actually going to stop us. We're, we're reading a little further than I had intended. I could just keep reading scripture for you guys if you would like. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, speak to us words of life and purpose. For the sake of your world, we pray. Amen. 
So Paul and Barnabas, they are sent off by the laying on of hands, by a church who knows them, by a church who cares for them. That church there in Antioch, they are asked to selflessly give up two of their very best leaders who are called by the Spirit of God to a specific work. The two are sent forth with blessing, and they are sent forth with generosity. Eventually, Barnabas and Paul, they arrive to the town of Lystra. Now, here's a little bit about what we know about Lystra. Lystra is a very rural village, and it mostly is comprised of uneducated people. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts, every story that we have come upon, the audience that the disciples, the apostles, are spending time with, they had all been influenced by a Jewish synagogue and by its beliefs. On all previous occasions and most subsequent ones, that is going to be the truth, that the activity of the apostles will be with Jews and with Gentiles who already have some sort of knowledge of God, the one true God. This appears to not be the case in rural Lystra. At Lystra, Paul encounters a man who has been crippled from birth. He has the very same prognosis as the man that we encountered uh, there in chapter 3. The man who was crippled, remember, at the, the temple gate, the beautiful gate there at the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. Those who witness the healing miracle, they react in amazement, which is expected. What is not expected or anticipated is that the people of Lystra will all of a sudden think that they are Greek gods. The crowd shout in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now this is really close to what Paul and Barnabas are trying to say, that God arrived in the flesh, yes, indeed, so that we could see what God is like, that when Jesus moved into the neighborhood, he came so that he could identify with those he came to save, that the word became flesh and lived among us, as we learn in John 1.14. But Barnabas and Paul, they soon learned that things have taken a bad turn. The crowd's superstitious and even fanatical behavior, it is really hard to comprehend. This is actually a, a great example of how literature and history and archaeology can sometimes flood a floodlight into a biblical text to help us to understand what in the world is going on. First, archaeological evidence. There has been found at an excavation site right outside of Lystra, dating back to A.D. 240, two inscriptions and a stone altar showing those two gods worshiping and being worshipped as two local deities. About 50 years prior to this time in church history, the Latin poet Ovid wrote in his Metamorphoses about an ancient local legend. And here's the ancient local legend. The legend is that the supreme god Jupiter, Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, or Hermes, that these two once visited the hill country in this very reason, region disguised as mortal men. They sought hospitality, but they were turned away 1,000 times. 
Eventually, they found hospitality in a place of refuge in the home of a peasant elderly couple who entertained the two Greek gods in disguise out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded that elderly couple, couple, but then they destroyed by flood all 1,000 homes that had turned them away. That's the ancient legend. So visiting gods is a part of this community story. And if the native people had failed to honor gods on the previous visit, they are anxious not to repeat that error. It takes a while for the apostles to catch on to what is happening because the crowd is speaking in a local dialect. By the time the priest of Zeus arrives with sacrificial bulls, they understand that things are going terribly wrong. Now, for all of you Star Wars fans out there, I think this scene, or at least it evokes for me, that scene in Return of the Jedi when the hunter-gatherer, teddy bear resembling Ewoks start worshiping C-3PO, who falls into the jungle that they inhabit, mistaking the droid for a god because he's all gold and shiny. Barnabas and Paul, they are horrified. They're horrified to be worshiped. So they rip their clothing, a, a Jewish custom, a sign of remorse and grief. And they urge them to stop explaining to them that they are simply bears of good news and humans just like them. Friends, I think during this part of the story, we can learn a lot from how Paul interacts with the people of rural Lystra. We can learn from his flexibility. We have to begin where people are and to find a, a place of contact, a, a place of connection with them. No doubt Paul included the good news of Jesus Christ, but with the people of Lystra, who have a worldview that is polyistic, they believe in the worship of multiple gods, Paul focuses not on scripture that they do not know, but rather on the natural world around them, which they do know and can see. He implores them to turn away from idolatrous worship to the and to turn toward the living and the true God. These deities you imagine, they really are a singular God. In this singular God, he provides everything for you, and the worship that he wants from you, the sacrifice that he wants from you, is not sacrificial bulls, but he wants the sacrifice of your very life. And he wants you to follow him. In the Kenyan commencement address delivered by American novelist David Foster Wallace in 2005, Wallace remarks that there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Wallace then goes on to explore how worship can be transformative or worship can be destructive depending on what we worship. Paul and Barnabas, they are desperate for these people to worship in a way that is not destructive, but to worship in a way that is transformative, which will require changing the object of their worship. 
It's amazing, once again, to observe the fickleness of the crowd. So changeable is the public opinion that Jews from two other cities, back from Antioch and Iconium, they have little difficulty putting an earlier plan into place to mistreat and to stone these messengers, specifically Paul. One minute, the people they desire to worship the two as if they are gods. The next minute, they are stoning them. Yet Luke records something similar of a Jerusalem crowd who, with loud voices, first acclaimed Jesus and then later demanded his execution. Yet Paul, like Jesus, his steadfast character was upset neither by flattery nor by opposition. Paul's clarifying speech ends with the people being scarcely restrained. There's a note of realism. Not every person, not every group is won over by Paul's rhetorical brilliance. Paul receives a serious beating. He is left for dead. After the lynch mob leaves, Paul receives some sort of care from disciples. And then incredibly, he recovers, and even more incredibly to me, he exhibits the raw courage to go back into the village of Lystra. There are three patterns that we see throughout the book of Acts. It's a pattern that we really see throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's a pattern that is repeated in our own lives as well. And here's the cycle. God does something beautiful and redemptive. People push back against that and sometimes reject it, but then God goes ahead and does something beautiful and redemptive anyway. God's story is a story of a God who continues to persevere and to reach out to a world that responds a little bit and rejects a lot. But instead of abandoning the world, God found a people who would follow him, even to difficult places and to difficult people. In the mission of Lystra, in the mission at Lystra, we observe the early disciples' response to rejection, and we see how they had a long memory when it came to the gospel and a short memory about people's reactions. A long memory when it came to the gospel and a short memory when it came to people's reactions. Friends, in a world that is increasingly turning the volume down more and more on the church and increasingly hostile, Christians will have to discover how to deal with many kinds of rejection. Rejection is a part of life none of us escapes. And rejection hurts. I actually read a a very interesting article a few weeks back involving brain imagery. Brain imagery studies show that a, a social snub affects the brain precisely or quite similarly to the way visceral pain does. Researcher and neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman, who studies the pain of social rejection, he explains that social pain feels a lot like physical pain. It's why we use physical metaphors to describe social pain, like broken heart or hurt feelings or being kicked in the gut. 
That kicked in the gut feeling when you are bullied at school, ignored at work, excluded from a party invitation, or not chosen for a team, it generates physical symptoms. To the brain, social pain feels a lot like physical pain. Lieberman goes on to say that a broken heart can feel like a broken leg. And then he says, looking at the brain scan side by side without knowing which was an analysis of physical pain and which was an analysis of social pain, that you would have a difficult time discerning the different difference looking at those two scans. Each one of us carries with us a whole mosaic of rejection. A whole list of times when we have been rejected by others in our past, we carry that with us. Friends, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we carry all those times of rejection and not give up? Rejection takes many forms and it comes from many places, but it impacts us all the same. I'd actually like to share with you a, a moment of rejection in my own life. It's not my most painful moment of rejection, but it is a particularly memorable time of rejection. I have been through three career transitions in my life, the most, recently, the most recent one being about nine years ago before I came here. I was speaking to quite a few different churches. And while interviewing, <laughs> this is the funny part I think about interviewing, while interviewing, even if you yourself are not that excited about the position, or if you yourself question whether it's a good fit between you and an employer, you still don't like to receive those rejection letters, do you? We all want to be chosen. Here's, here's this moment of rejection that I will share with you, a, a favorite moment during that most recent time. So when you're a pastor, by the way, your rejection letters come from churches. <laughs> Dear Miss Williams, the nominating committee for associate pastor for Congregational Life, we've received your information. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. We reviewed and were impressed by your background and by the skills that you bring to ministry. We regretfully inform you, however, that the committee has concluded that other Individuals have backgrounds, experiences more closely match the specific needs of the position. This all sounds so familiar, doesn't it? We wish you the very best in your continued ministry and are grateful for the gifts that you bring to our denomination sincerely signed by the chair of this committee. This was a most memorable moment because I didn't even apply for this particular <laughs> position. This was bonus rejection. Friends, for those of you who right now are feeling particularly beat up by the opinions of others, may I remind you of God's eternal perspective. You are loved. You are gifted. You are valued. You are God's workmanship, a once in all eternity, never to be repeated work of art. You are changed and changing life. It has infinite value 
and purpose. The Apostle Paul received bonus rejection over and over again. Yet the remarkable thing is that he unbelievably, with courage and with faith, he perseveres. How in the world is he able to do so? I'd actually like to share three observations with you from this text in particular, but just looking a little bit more broadly at Paul's journey. Observations about Paul's ability to persist even when it is difficult. The first being that Paul was absolutely committed and convinced. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, even to the point of death, that the good news of the resurrected and living Christ was absolutely true, which propelled him forward in mission. Can we say the same? Second, we risk and we give of ourselves because of a concern that uh, our neighbors flourish. This desire for another to be fully alive and to live the abundant life, it's got to overshower, overshadow any concern that we might have about having to face the rejection from another human being. It's just too important. The longing for others to have the richest life imaginable it helps us to keep going in spite of any rejection. And third, we need spiritual friendship. In part to receive care and encouragement when we are beat up by life and need to be reminded of our significance and our value to God and to tell one another that. We live in challenging times in which our faith that God is ultimately in control is tested Times when many of the Bible's principles are routinely ridiculed or ignored by our secular society. Times when staying faithful is most definitely a challenge. The pressures may tempt us to lose hope, just fit in, or seek a more sheltered life. Community is absolutely essential. Friends, we are called and sent to bear witness to the one who alone can and will make all things right, and we are invited to participate. He wants to use you, and he wants to use me as a part of this good work. May we take heart, and may we persist in the living of this calling day by day. Please pray with me. Oh God, would you help us to see where and when we can bring your good news and grace to others. Enlarge our hearts, enlarge our lives. God, we know that this work is only possible because of the spirit of the living God at work in us and at work in this community. So we thank you for the spirit and we say thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for valuing us. Lord, help us to live in to our calling in the places where you would have us and to persevere in this work of love. In the name of Jesus, we make this prayer together. Amen.